0: Hello fellow foodies. This is Cassandra Quave, the host of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week we have a very special guest, John Drury. You may know John from one of his four amazing TED Talks on botany, which have had millions of views. He's also the author of the international bestseller Around the World in 80 Treats, that's now in 18 languages and its latest sequel around the world in 80 plants which has just been published john has been on the board of the royal botanic gardens Q and the eden project and he's also an ambassador for the worldwide love fund thanks so much for coming on the show john
1: Thanks for having me. Hello, how are you?
0: I'm good, I'm good. Well, I'm really excited to speak with you. You're such an amazing science communicator. I mean, your, your TED Talks, there's a reason they've been viewed millions of times. Um, really insightful looks at, at the plant world.
1: I have a feeling it's just because I've, I'm English and people like the accent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you have to use every advantage you've got, right?
1: <laughs> That's yeah, <great>. exactly.
0: <laughs> well, why don't we start with just a basic question of, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in plants, science, and food, and, and how all those things intersect?
1: Yeah, I, I grew up in southwest London in, in England, uh, near a place called the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, which is the sort of great-grandmother and grandfather of all the botanic gardens in the world. And my father had come to Britain as a a new immigrant from Eastern Europe and had uh, had to retrain from botany, which was his first love, into engineering. And the way that he satisfied his interest in botany and actually my mother's interest in botany as well, um, the way they satisfied that was to take my brother and me or actually drag us around (laughs) the Kew Gardens every week. Uh, between the age, you know, I was every week between the age of about three and probably 14, where I probably rebelled. <laughs> and they jollied us along with the usual kind of sweets and ice cream, but also stories about the plants. And uh, my mother was particularly interested in the beauty, my father particularly interested in the science. And between them, my brother and I got this fantastic uh, grounding, if if you like, in in botany and in stories about plants. And Uh, when things got really difficult, if it was pouring rain or what have you, then um, they would uh, jolly us along by sort of feeding us bits of the plants. And that was fantastic when, you know, they were herbs and spices and so on. And we used to go into the hot houses and have really exotic tastes. And it was wonderful sort of surreptitiously taking a little leaf here Mm -hmm. and there or a little flower here and there. And then I remember the time very vividly when, (laughs) um, My dad uh, sort of found uh, the seed pod of an opium poppy and and (laughs) cut it and and it was exuding the little uh, opium latex. And uh, he said, have a little lick of that. I was about nine (laughs) at the time. And... Uh, and I, I remember the sensation on my tongue wasn't really anything terribly special. It was a sort of, mm-hmm. I, I, in my memory, it, it made my a little bit of my tongue go ever so slightly numb. But, you know, the way you have it if you had a little lick of ice cream, really. But the really big effect was when I told my teacher at school and was dragging was bragging about it and they sent around a social worker oh, no. <laughs> to, to talk to my to talk to my mum and I remember my mum was all sort of up to her arms in cooking at the time at the door and and she said, it's only opium <laughs> but, but that was how I, I sort of started getting my my interest really and and then some of the stories that um that I remember my dad told me, I think I was about 11 or so, when he said, look, I'm going to tell you a really serious story now. And he he took a little piece of uh, a plant that we call Diffenbachia, uh, yeah. which I think in the United States you call dumb canes. The reason that it's called dumb canes has a very sort of unpleasant history, because it was a, a plant that was uh, given to enslaved people to basically keep them quiet or as a punishment. And my father had had a, a sort of difficult time. His fa- he'd lost his family during the war, and um, it, slavery and man's inhumanity to man were subjects that he found difficult to broach. And he so he talked to me about slavery through this plant uh, mm. and t- telling telling me the story of how the plant had been used as a sort of punishment in the Southern United States, and. Uh, uh, you know, and of course, the plant is covered in warning saying, do not feed this to your dog or your child. Yeah. Or
0: it's, it's full of those calcium oxalate crystals. It, it was it was a really big, you know, horrific way it was used also in the Caribbean with the African slaves in the Caribbean to, you know, punish people and causes your tongue to swell pretty, pretty seriously, um, and kill yeah. you from just blocking the air passageway. If, if well, it I, just swelling. as an
1: experiment, I I tried a little bit, I mean, the, he gave me a tiny piece, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that was a really minuscule piece, but I tried a little bit more recently, just when I was writing the book, just to mm-hmm. see, and it is, as you describe, a really sort of un, unpleasant thing. Um, and, the, uh, and I, I sort of, you know, as I was researching the book, I discovered more and more um, of the history that either I was never taught, which mm-hmm. I think is actually probably the right way to look at it, uh, or that at least it went one in in one ear and out the other as a as a as a schoolboy, um, and I, there were there are quite a lot of plants that really have a strong association with um, either slavery or empire or colonialism, which um, uh, you know is, is, one has to have pretty mixed feelings about actually. Um, there's a flower uh, in um, uh, in the Bahamas. It's a sort of very very well known in the Bahamas called the peacock flower. and uh, uh, or or at least that's its common name it's pulcarima. And um, this uh, plant, uh, I don't know why it's called the peacock flower because where i uh, any time I've ever seen peacocks, they've always been blue. But yeah. the, but this is a sort of bright yellow and orange uh, flower. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of pollinated by uh, butterflies. And, you know, it's done some quite interesting things to keep the hummingbirds away.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but the, uh, the seeds have been used in abort, as an abortive drug. Mm-hmm. And tribal people in the Caribbean have used it for generations and generations, long, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years uh, as a sort of form of birth control. Uh, But of course, enslaved people did the same thing so that women uh, avoided having children who would be brought into a sort of backbreaking life of of, of slavery. Uh, So it's got a very sort of, uh, you know, a lot of these stories have a kind of um, poignant, difficult side to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I think it is interesting as 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 you learn more of these plant stories, you begin to see the world in a whole different way because you know what might to one person just be a beautiful flower actually has a tremendous history um, behind it. One of my one of my favorite um, stories is that of um, the story of Jean Beret. Are, are you familiar with her? No, Do you, I don't think I yeah. know this one. So Jean Beret was this you know 17th century herb woman who um, was the first to circumnavigate the globe. And whenever I see this gorgeous, showy bougainvillea, I always think of her and her bravery in in going on this journey, disguised as a man, by the way, on this journey during this period. I mean, every plant has some interesting history um, behind it. And yeah.
1: I, uh, I love the fact that bougainvillea, if I if I've got this right, the the, um, the beautiful beautiful colouring is not in what we think of as flowers, but they're exactly. actually just sort of the the, the leaves that mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of the bracts that look uh, have this sort of fantastic vivid purple colour. Yeah,
0: exactly. And the, and now it's you know it's you can find it in so many places as a decorative plant. Um, you you mentioned something earlier too about you know the role of plants in kind of colonial expansion and and many of the plants that all of our listeners enjoy today um have played a role in this if you think about cotton coffee chocolate all of these things that we kind of take for granted as as things that are easily available um weren't always so and came at great cost to people historically
1: yes i mean the um uh, you know the the spanish conquest of uh, central america and, uh, and and the north coast of south america was was sort of pretty unpleasant actually uh, i mean the the aztecs were <laughs> you know had some pretty um, unusual practices themselves but the uh, you know the the, the spanish uh, conquest was was a cruel time um but of course they brought back lots and lots of plants to to europe um mm-hmm. that uh, you know have become uh, hugely important. So you know the the, um, uh, the you know many of the things that you mentioned, but you know sugar from the Caribbean, tobacco, uh, mm-hmm. tomatoes, um, uh, potatoes from Peru. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in fact, tomatoes when they were introduced into um, uh, into Britain, uh, they they it, it, Culpeper, not Culpeper, sorry, um, Gerard in his herbal mm-hmm. of 1597, um, he he wrote that tomatoes were of um, a rank and stinking savor, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 you know you can understand on the one hand why he felt this because you know they were they're a member of the Solanum family and the Solanum family along with potatoes and you know uh, there are some pretty unpleasant things in the Solanum family. So there's Mandrake, which has a whole fantastic kind of occult history, um, but also uh things like you know that we call deadly nightshade um i don't know if that's a plant that you have in the united states but it's pretty unpleasant stuff uh so lots of cyanides lots of you know really unpleasant things in them Mm -hmm. and he um Uh, So he was probably swayed in his view about tomato because of because of that, knowing it was part of that family. Um, But on the other hand, he also at the same time knew that the Italians and the Spanish were tucking into tomatoes and enjoying them like anything. And this his his words set back the tomato marketing in Britain by about 200 years.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And,
1: And in the United States, tomatoes became popular because they were seen as a sort of health thing. First of mm-hmm. all, you know, that's um, and then and then you had the, this great debate about whether they were vegetables or fruit and they got defined as vegetables um, only because of tax reasons. Yeah, <laughs> so they would be taxed it, differently.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. How how we view different um, foods and also how they're regulated. I'm thinking, you know, the extension of that in our in our you know, U.S. kind of food system is for the purposes of school children, you know, the tomato sauce. Is considered a vegetable which is actually the commercial tomato sauce is full of of it's actually got probably more corn than tomato because of the corn syrup that's added to sweeten these sauces um but it, it's fascinating how how these transform it and are such an integral part of our history
1: well um, if, yeah. is, sorry i was just going to say that um you know it's interesting you it should bring up corn uh mm-hmm. or as we call it in this country in in in, in england we call it maize but um corn uh has a kind of mixed history, really, because it's uh, uh, it's one of those uh, plants that if you um, eat too much corn, um, you can get uh, sort of deficiency diseases that are linked with a, a, a sort of lack of a chemical called niacin. And uh, if you eat um, uh, the, the sort of indigenous people of the United States uh, used to eat uh, corn alongside squash and legumes and so on, and, and which was a, a sort of good balanced diet, but also used to cook the corn in an alkali mixture, which meant that, you know, the sort of chemical thing didn't happen and that, that you didn't get these deficiency diseases. But at the in the early 19th century, there were 100,000 people who were mentally deficient in um, the southern United States because of es- essentially kind of eating co- too much corn. And the advertising was all e- eat corn, somewhere or another every meal, you know, it's, uh, and if you look on your cereal packet, now you'll see that niacin is added back in, uh, so we don't get these deficiency diseases but it's sort of quite a um you know in, interesting history really that corn has
0: absolutely and, and it is interesting as well how in in the indigenous cuisine they sorted out ways to get around that problem um through through changing you know the the ph of the food
1: that's, that's right that's by ed- adding a little bit of wood ash mm-hmm. or, or, yeah. or eggshell and in, into the water yeah yeah
0: so simple, effective. <laughs> well, I want to talk a bit about your book, your latest book on Around the World with 80 Plants. So beautiful. I love the cover, by the way. It's so it's, it's so got colorful. these fantastic
1: illustrations in it as well by oh. Lucille, Lucille Clerc. She's a French artist, very sort of whimsical and wonderful living in London. Oh my um, goodness. And they, are, you know, so it's not really a coffee table book. Um, it's a um, uh it, it's you know got plenty of text and everything but they're just such beautiful beautiful pictures um and if you look really closely she's put all sorts of funny little detail in there that you can kind of <laughs> it's like a kid's book for adults
0: <laughs> that's great that's great i love
1: that one of the tomato uh, sorry of the pineapple <laughs>
0: oh that's beautiful wow and so on earth we have around close to four hundred thousand species of plants how did you narrow down the field to 80
1: <laughs> well yeah, it's a great question. I mean, when I um, did Around the World in 80 Trees, which was the sort of previous one, mm-hmm. I, um, I had 60,000 trees to choose from and I had to choose 80. And as you say, about 400,000 plants. I, I've counted seaweeds and so on as plants mm-hmm. as well and mosses. And, and so there are you know, maybe even more than 400,000. Um, my first criterion was uh, that it had to be a geographical spread around the world. Um, Second was that I wanted different plant families and different kinds of plants represented. So there's everything from carnivorous plants to agricultural crops to really obscure things to more familiar things and so on. Um, And then uh, the most important thing for me was that in each story that I told, because it's essentially 80 biographies, 80 stories about different species in each one, I wanted to make sure that whatever the expertise that someone was bringing to it, uh, there would be something new. So there would be something in each story that would be new, whether you were a gardener or a historian or just a sort of quite interested in cookery or, or or whatever um and that whittled away a lot actually and there's a combination in there of research on the latest uh sort of scientific papers where i turned up the most you know kind of amazing things that people are discovering now and and also very old documents uh, one of the, the things that I just turned up, you know, in you know, which is researched just in the last uh, year and a half or so, um, was actually about tomatoes. Or well, I keep saying tomatoes, but you say tomatoes. Yeah, it's but like you know, you know a, what I mean.
0: Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. <laughs>
1: um, Solanum lycopersicum. There
0: we go.
1: <laughs> um, but the uh, uh, one of the things I discovered about t- uh, tomatoes uh, is that. Uh, of course, they're buzz pollinated, so they need bumblebees to come along and uh, clamp themselves onto the flowers and buzz like frenzy. And uh, in fact, they 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 raise the wing beat just to sort of vibrate the uh, pollinate, which is that's all well known. But the, get this in in South Korea, scientists have discovered that if you play loud sound, a high C, that is not a mid C, <laughs> a high C loud to um, green tomatoes, you can delay their ripening by about six or seven days. And it's to do with the way that the uh, sort of RNA is expressed in in these plants and, uh, you know, which affects then the ripening hormone uh, that that plants uh, make. And it just kind of extraordinary, not only that that works, but also that somebody discovered it. Hey, let's play some loud sound to these tomatoes.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Well, I've always heard about, you know, people saying that playing music to plants, that plants like to hear music. And I'm like, really? But what does that actually mean? Like, is this real science? (laughs) That's amazing.
1: Well, and and it's it's funny because our um, uh, next in line to the throne, Prince Charles, Mm -hmm. uh, everyone made huge fun of him in the 1980s when he said that he talked to plants and things. and, And, you know, some of us affectionately still do a bit. But the. The, the, um, there was another piece of research from the Volcani Institute in Israel where they um, took uh, plants of the impatiens family, which is a kind of busy lizzie and Himalayan balsam and those sort of mm-hmm. things. And they uh, monitored the constituents of the nectar that the plant is obviously producing in order to, uh, you know, sort of repay insects that are going to carry the pollen somewhere else. And they discovered that the plant was modulating the content of the nectar according to what insect was coming along. And and they did that before the insect had arrived, and, and they worked out that it was the sound. So the, the sound of a butterfly and the sound of a bee are very different, and they each need a different kind of mix of amino acids and sugars and so on. And the the plant was able to respond in about 15 seconds to uh to give a different range of chemicals to the pollinator that,
0: that is amazing thing. it's amazing well i mean i th- i think so many of us when we see plants we think of them as kind of static creatures because they don't move around like animals and you know and but in reality they're communicating with each other they're changing their expression of different genes and and chemicals and um i mean and don't get me started on the whole you know everything happening beneath the soil with all the fungi <laughs> and communication systems across these, you know, mycorrhizae. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: it, it is absolutely um, in, incredible what's going on. And I love the, the idea, I mean, you've sort of hinted at it there, of things that are hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, there's this whole world that we, could see if only we knew where to look, you know, so there's the ultraviolet patterning on, on flowers that's kind of got, it's like landing strips for, mm-hmm. for landing lights for, for bees, you know, uh, who they see in green, blue and ultraviolet, we see in red, green and blue. And so, you know, they're, they're seeing patterns that we can't perceive. Uh, but if you have the right camera and lenses, you can, you can see those things, um, that you've got the, uh, the the sort of trees that are responding to being attacked by sending kind of chemicals wafting through the air or through the underground mycorrhizal networks that say, hey, you might want to manufacture some defense chemicals as well. You know, I mean, that's just uh, extraordinary, isn't it? It is.
0: It's it's so interesting because I can tell you that when I was taking my introductory biology courses as a student, I never recall learning any of these things. Maybe they weren't quite known then. It's just, it's just, a whole new way of looking at nature
1: but, but you today. know i i think that it's just bad teaching which i had as well right mm-hmm. so other than my parents who who gave me sort of a real in, interest in it uh, i think it's really just sort of poor teaching because if you go back as far as darwin and uh look at what he wrote just observing plants okay so the language is a little bit kind of archaic to us and it's not mm-hmm. so easy to read sometimes but it, it's really exciting, you know, and he, he was, he, you know, he all that work on orchids and their crazy relationship with pollinators is fantastic. And it's so bizarre and so amazing. And this was in the, you know, mid 19th century, you know, so mm-hmm. I think it was just that you were taught badly and I was taught badly. So, so how, how is it that you ended up in um, uh, where you have, you know, if you didn't get this very good grounding in biology at school?
0: Well, I mean, I guess I had a solid basic grounding Um, it really came from, honestly, my training with indigenous healers that I began to have a better appreciation for the many complex interactions, not only between people and plants, but also plants and other organisms and their environment. I mean, you think about, you know, within the Peruvian Amazon, there are all kinds of myths and lore about relationships between animals and plants and their beliefs around the ways or that the the ways that plants present themselves and the harvest. And you see this not just in the Amazon, but, you know, all across the the world that, you know, you should harvest the leaves of this plant in the morning, or, you know, only collect this, this uh, liana when it's a certain girth to make your, you know, to make your medicine. So I think that, I think that going even well beyond before Darwin, looking to many of these indigenous healers across the globe, they've had insights into into these interactions it just hasn't quite translated itself so, so well over to western kind of dogmatic uh, principles of teaching yet
1: i think a lot of the um the, you know the things which we sometimes disregard as superstition mm-hmm. actually have a really important kind of role and um you know for example in madagascar the uh, a lot of the baobab trees there they the, um uh, at Ansonia, they're protected um, because people sort of the folk belief, uh, you know, nobody really believes it, actually, but it's the sort of folk belief that the your ancestors, the spirit of your ancestors live in the Baobab. And so people sort of protect them. And it, it's not so much they literally believe that the ancestors live there, but more like kind of they represent your ancestors.
0: Uh-huh. And therefore,
1: you should sort of, you know, in the way that we wouldn't desecrate a graveyard. And Uh, that has actually a very kind of useful function because people protect the trees. Mm -hmm. And similarly in West Africa, there are um, many stories about the yams and there are yam festivals. Uh, But of course, a lot of yams are actually quite dangerous to eat. Um, And so a lot of these folk stories and fairy stories and things that they have are about, you know, someone eating the wrong variety and (laughs) and so on. And this is a way that you educate people and mm-hmm. you know, it's not like people be- actually believe it literally, but it's uh, it's just a sort of lovely thing that's kind of built into the culture. And I I, um, I I think that those stories are often really useful pointers for us coming coming to it. That you kind of you you can sort of think, well, I wonder what lies behind this. And I'm just thinking about this in our village at the moment. I'm I'm sitting here talking to you about 130 miles southwest of London, in a um, in a village uh where we're wondering what to do with a kind of communal space in the middle mm-hmm. uh which is this sort of we call it the paddock and it's just yeah. a sort of i don't know it's about um you know 200 yards by 200 yards in the middle of this little village which has about 18 or 19 houses in it and for the older people in the village um they want to mow it and they want to keep it completely flat like a cricket ground <laughs> um and uh of course those of us who are are either younger or sort of young at heart and understand biodiversity and the need for biodiversity and so on want to have sections of it with flowers or left completely wild um plant some trees and and so on um in order to encourage the insects and nature to come back and you know i i was trying to sort of um see the world through their eyes and for them, they come from a generation where keeping nature at bay was really important. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that is in the sort of in the United States when I look at it, you know, that the um, the sort of, you know, it's not that many generations since actually people were at war with nature, really. Yeah. and And that kind of explains a lot of how people feel. Uh, you know, and the way they express it, they might not sort of realize what quite what's going on in their subconscious. About you know, and they talk about the lack of tidiness, and they hate the the fact that you know someone has a, a front yard that's kind of not been mown and got beautiful kind of golf course kind of grass on mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I look at it and I think you know that looks like a green desert. But they're probably thinking you know that that's sort of wrong. Um, and and uh, you know, so I think understanding that is an important you know uh sort of uh, i don't know it's something on the on the way to helping them to change their minds i hope
0: yeah no i am of the exact same mindset i mean when you look through you know a typical american suburb we you know one probably i would i would guess that one of our largest kind of forms of monoculture here is of grass you know of getting these uniform grasses that we we put a, a tremendous amount of of herbicides into the environment, pesticides, you know, water usage that's often improper in these settings. And it's to create kind of, like you said, a, a biodiverse, you know, absent kind of environment um, in this quest to kind of have this cookie cutter tamed um, look.
1: I'm, I'm know, a big
0: fan of going wild. I like, I, 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 really, I really want to transform my backyard into just a, it's a small yard, but there's, there's some sort of like wild, Met wildflowers let it just let it go <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah I mean if you look at it from grass's point of view rather than our mm-hmm. point of view yeah then, then you know the grass has been like extraordinarily effective because uh, you know not only have we sort of uh, uprooted forests all over the world to grow um mm-hmm. you know the 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 key grasses which are our crops you know the the sort of rice and wheat and so on these are these Mm -hmm. are grasses you know but we also um fight over golf courses and you know all this kind of thing it's like the grass is probably just thinking wow have we ever managed to manipulate human beings this is fantastic
0: it's true it's true this will be the era of like the the rule the poesi (laughs) of the grass family that's great well, I want to dive into some other stories in your book. I'm really interested in the history of Nutmeg because I think, you know, it, I mean, it has a very um, interesting history that, you know, involves even characters such as Marco Polo and yes. the Dutch. And, and 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 now even, you know, uh, the... Improper use of it as a hallucinogen in American prisons, which, by the way, you're hallucinating because you're getting close to very toxic doses of certain compounds in nutmeg. What can you tell us about nutmeg?
1: Well, nutmeg is is um, a kind of amazing thing, and uh, you know the the worst thing that we get up to with it nowadays is is mainly powdering it in in advance of use, rather than grating it (laughs) at the end of cooking. And you know a lot of the flavor is destroyed by cooking, so you should really put it in at the end. Um, And if if you do that uh, right, then even something as as banal as boiled rice pudding can be quite nice. Mm. But back in the sort of, um, you know, 17th century or so, um, nutmeg was a hugely big deal because there was only one source of it in the world. And that was in the island of Run, which is uh, now in Indonesia. And the French and the British and the Spanish all fought each other for decades and decades and decades about, you know, basically getting rights to, um, to, to, you know, monopoly rights for, for, uh, for nutmeg. And, Eventually, after, you know, there's quite a sizable loss of life going on. Uh, and, and and of course, you know, these are colonial powers. Forget the people who are living there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the uh, you know, eventually in 1667, um, the British said to the Dutch who, who had the island at the time, um, have the nutmeg, just take it we'll just have some little thing in return you know one of your little colonial outposts see how business is done Mm -hmm. um we'll just have somewhere else we'll take that 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 little place in north america manhattan so manhattan (laughs) was traded for um you know originally traded supposedly with the indigenous tribes but but afterwards was traded between the dutch and the british in return for um for rights to to nutmeg and nutmeg is an amazing plants, the um, it's, uh, you know, all plants need to find a way of dispersing their seeds, right? So the, the seed doesn't compete with the mother tree. And uh, in nutmeg, you have this lovely fleshy fruit, which is very attractive to certain animals, um, who then come along and swallow the, uh, the seed inside, which has an aerial sort of seed coating, which is this lovely, beautiful, bright red web kind of thing, which is the spice we call mace. Uh And um, uh, that, uh, not the stuff you spray in people's faces in the United States. (laughs) This is a different thing. And uh, the the thing that comes along and eats this thing is a nutmeg pigeon. It's a big sort of bird and uh, they poop out the the seed somewhere else. And, you know, it it gets dispersed. And uh, in the 18th century, um, not only was nutmeg terribly expensive, Um, uh, as a sort of flavouring and an ingredient. And Leonardo da Vinci back in 1510, you know, had said, oh, I needs, you know, he needed one as an amulet. Um, You know, it was a sort of um, uh, something that you'd uh, carry with you. You know, he said he had his sort of shopping list of uh, acquire a skull, um, spectacles, nutmeg you know (laughs) this is what he needed to take on his trip to Padua but in the 18th century it was the Viagra of the day it was it was absolutely an aphrodisiac and performance enhancer and uh, or seen as that and uh, young men used to sort of carry around a a silver nutmeg grater around the streets of London you know they sort of have it in their waistcoat pocket whip out the nutmeg grater and, and just give themselves a little dose of it if they think they needed it and you can imagine the combination of scarcity and the fact that it was this aphrodisiac and performance enhancer, the price was absolutely you know sky high. And um, later, much later, um, in the nineteen forties, uh, Malcolm X, the, the sort of black American activist, um, uh, he he uh, and his mates took uh, nutmeg in prison as a sort of way of getting high, really, of sort of um, Uh, you know what else was there to do in prison and um, as a result when he wrote his autobiography nutmeg got banned from American prison kitchens uh, so people couldn't sort of get high on it and I remember as a student trying to get high on nutmeg and I don't know whether you've done this or not but I mean uh, you know it's not not a very attractive thing because it makes you kind of horribly throw up and it's just sort of awful and the the hallucinations like you know paled into into insignificance beside the sort of throwing up <laughs>
0: mm, yeah yeah don't,
1: don't try that one at home <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's, it's it's fascinating how you mentioned earlier too the the flavoring and also just for the audience to know the amount of nutmeg that you're using in a typical recipe in the kitchen is not going to yield these types of effects so
1: no no worries you're not going to throw up (laughs) i mean uh, this, this is true a lot of spices um you know are quite sort of chemically biologically active and they've evolved that way because they want to deter herbivores from eating Mm -hmm. them, you know they and they want to sort of stop insects attacking them and and all of that so they have these chemicals but um you know something you know if you think about salt i mean if you take masses and masses of salt that would be bad but you know what we use in cooking is fine so so nutmeg you're safe with nutmeg (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: great and and i think you know one thing you touched on just a moment ago too is about the the time of maximal flavor because we also see this with black pepper right is when you have nutmeg as being pre-ground you lose a lot of those volatile compounds that really impart the flavor and and the full spectrum of 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 aromas that you get from the spice and the same can be said for black pepper you're going to get much more out of it if it's freshly ground
1: Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. Um, and I, I'm not sure what the effect is of cooking on the sort of bactericidal, and, uh, you know, sort of um, effects of these uh, of these of these spices. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, and and, and not only, um, you know, even if you're cooking with them, so things like turmeric and uh, chili pepper and uh, coriander seed and so on, um, you know, if you go to. Uh, south and southeast asia where people are really using a lot of these spices um and and frequently uh, they'll pretty much always grind them just before cooking rather than have them already powdered
0: yeah and and what
1: i like about that is actually that it slows you down (laughs) you know that that's to me part of part of the whole eating process and Mm -hmm. is, is that you just slow down a little bit you know yeah
0: I like that. Yeah, this I, this, it kind of falls into the whole slow food perspective of, of using this whole ingredients too. Um, well, on the topic of, of plant aphrodisiacs, because I think this is something that's really interesting, what else can you tell us about plant aph- aphrodisiacs? I mean, are there a lot of these types of plants out there? What do we know about them scientifically? I mean, have these been scientifically validated or is it more of around lore of their uses?
1: Well, the the thing about aphrodisiacs is, if you believe in them strongly enough, they work, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. in a lot of cultures, you find that plants that have a very high protein and calorific content uh, are regarded as aphrodisiacs. Mm. And you can imagine that if people are being a bit underfed um, and uh, you know have malnutrition, then that's not great for your libido. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, having something like avocados, which were seen as uh, aphrodisiacs, um, in in sort of indigenous culture, uh, is you know is understandable. the 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 way the avocado was um, uh, marketed in the United States is quite interesting, though, because the um, uh, they were originally called alligator pears uh, back in the sort of twenties and thirties, and uh, they weren't terribly popular, and. Uh, the, you know, the reason was probably to do with the fact that alligators are not really that <laughs> kind of uh, cuddly and uh, people didn't yeah. feel too good about it. So they took the Native American word and uh, used the word avocado, which is similar to that. And Um, As part of the kind of rebranding, the marketing people loudly and frequently said, this is not an aphrodisiac. That's ridiculous to suggest it's (laughs) it's an aphrodisiac. Um, The the reports, the rumours of this being an aphrodisiac are totally not true. And of course, everyone goes, oh, it must be true. (laughs) And and the uh, the news kind of skyrocketed. Um, Then there are are plants that uh, definitely uh, sort of decrease people's inhibitions. So we know that alcohol kind of does that, whether it's um, uh, an aphrodisiac in all cultures. uh, You know, there's a big difference between the way football, football hooligans uh, in Europe drink alcohol and the way a Mm. French family would drink alcohol or the way a pair of lovers would would drink alcohol at a dinner. You know, these are different ways of using the drug. But there's a a plant from uh, West Africa, uh, West Africa called Iboga, um, uh, Tabernanthe Iboga. Uh, which uh, is uh, something that is kind of associated with various uh, initiation rites. Um, it's being explored in the West, actually, to wean people off heroin addiction. So it's quite an interesting, um, uh, potentially quite an interesting treatment for that. Um, but uh, that's, a, you know, seems to have a kind of a lowering sexual inhibitions kind of uh, thing. It's not necessarily to do with performance enhancing, but it it's a kind of uh, takes away inhibitions. Um, and then uh, in in britain we have um stinging nettles which uh people have used to um you know for all sorts of sort of sexual purposes oh, <laughs> which, <really>? sounds, <laughs> which which um uh, doesn't sound ter- it doesn't sound terribly <laughs> appealing to me i have to say but um i i chose nettles in the uh in in the plants book i, I chose nettles to represent england uh not because of the kind of weird sexually repressed thing i, I could have done that um but more because uh, uh there's something about nettles that represents England in terms of sort of mild peril. There's nothing really out to get you here, uh, unlike the States where you have sort of rattlesnakes and bears and things. And so uh, the, about the worst you can get is a nettle sting, which is is pretty mild. And the Romans, when they were here, um, the worst possible posting in the in the Roman Empire was the uh, border between England and Scotland, which was the Hadrian's Wall at the time, mm-hmm. and so these poor Roman soldiers, they were you know blue with cold, um, used to try and warm themselves up by whacking them over <laughs> themselves <laughs> over the shoulder <laughs> with a bunch of nettles that would just sort of make you feel a bit warm for a bit. But here's the thing: um, people seem to be discovering now that that for people who have rheumatism and arthritis, which are kind of autoimmune diseases, that um, uh, the, there seems to be some uh, some evidence. In other words, it's not particularly high-quality evidence yet, but there's some evidence that uh, these sort of nettle stings can prompt the um, immune system to act in a slightly different way and seems to relieve some of the symptoms of rheumatism and arthritis. So, you know, the jury's out, but it's an interesting one.
0: That's fabulous. I mean, also because nettles are such a great nutritious food ingredient as well for you know as a green vegetable and also in tea i mean there's so many uses of yeah, that i
1: mean I, th- I think personally i think the tea is a bit overrated and i i, I find it a bit dull but the um uh there uh, the are other plants i prefer like lemon balm is fantastic mm. melissa if you can grow that that's beautiful in tea that's really yes. good and for some reason you don't see dried packs of it you, you know you sort of need or you don't in europe anyway mm-hmm. um or linden lime flower tilia for the big trees yeah, that's... That, that's fantastic in tea but the um uh, I, I i think that the nettles in soup um are if you get them when they're young obviously rubber gloves <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, as soon as you as soon as you start cooking them then the sting goes away right so you're not going to get sore throat or sore mouth or anything and they're pretty good yeah mm-hmm. you know you have to sort of add a bit of fried onion a bit of garlic <laughs> lemon juice you know yeah
0: yeah i have a very i have a funny story with nettles when i was a graduate student out doing my field work on my own for the first time. I, I had I, I, I just hated wearing gloves because I get so hot when I'm out, you know, and this is in southern Italy. And I distinctly remember the day I grabbed a handful of sting not realizing that they were nettles. Because <laughs> no. I was still learning taxonomy at that point. And growing up in Florida, we don't have a lot of nettles there. <laughs> so I grabbed them with my hand <laughs> and it was on fire. Like, oh, this is, you know, I need to wear gloves in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we, you know, because we, we have... um a system of uh, public rights of way here, you know, footpaths all Mm -hmm. over the country. So, you know, uh, which often go across kind of fields and, you know, through hedges and all of that kind of thing. So just yesterday, I got, you know, pretty much stung with uh, (laughs) with nettles. That's
0: great. Well, John, as we wrap up, I think, why don't we go to, what was your favorite plant to research and write about for for this book?
1: So one of my favorite plants is, it, it, there's this beautiful uh, d- drawing. I don't know if you can see that by oh, uh, And it's mm-hmm. this this tree here, uh, and this is, uh, in, that was in Namibia in um, Southwest Africa. And uh, that tree is called the quiver tree. It's um, alloydendron and it, it's a, a quite a close relative of aloe vera, which people are familiar oh. with from cosmetics and so on. But this mm-hmm. thing is kind of 60 feet high. And um, when people say to me, why why is it such a favorite? And they they think I'm going to say because it thrives in this incredible desert environment where nothing else is growing. And of course, that is amazing. But the reason I I love it, there's two other reasons. The first is that it's a um, it's the national plant of Namibia. So whenever anyone sees it, they smile. Right. So that's one reason. And uh, it's a bit like driving a Morris Minor car. You know, everyone kind of grins at you. And then the second reason is that it's got this kind of waxy coating, powdery coating, that when you touch it, it's very sort of lovely sort of smooth uh, Mm -hmm. coating, uh, which actually helps protect the plant from ultraviolet rays. Um, but the idea of being uh, a plant that everyone smiles at and that everyone wants to touch and stroke I think that's the that's the tree I would be <laughs> the quiver <laughs> that's tree
0: of Namibia. of Namibia which is which is an aloe that's I didn't even realize that aloes could get that large that's amazing yeah
1: it's fantastic and the flowers and the, you know you get all this life around it of insects and birds oh. and everything that that's just extraordinary yeah. that's
0: great i'll I'll have to add that one to my bucket list of plants to visit and we talked about speaking with plants earlier and i'm definitely one of those people that talks to plants that i meet in nature <laughs> so on my hikes i'll stop and greet the ones that i recognize so i'll be sure to greet that one next time i see it
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well you'd be a great person to go for a hike with
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, John, for for coming on the show. And tell us again, where can our listeners find out more about your book? Where um do you have a website that we can direct
1: them to? So so here are the two books, Around the World and Eighty Trees, Around the World and Eighty Plants. Around the World and Eighty Trees is in about eighteen languages now. And Around the World and Eighty Plants is, is just come out, so it's just in three or four languages, but English is there. Um, and they can be found in, uh, you know, any good bookshop, Amazon, you know, all the usual places. Uh, and if you want to find out more about me and my work, then I'm at johndrawry.co.uk. So that's J-O-N-D-R-O-R-I, johndrory.co.uk.
0: That's great. And I know you have links there also to your TED Talks, which I think are fabulous to watch for any of you that haven't seen it yet in the audience um, to learn about, you know, even more cool things about plants.
1: Thank you. <laughs> That's Thanks. great.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious, recorded on Skype. Um, you can find this and all of our other episodes at foodiepharmacology.com you can also view video of this episode and others at the teach ethnobotany youtube channel thanks so much to our producers to rob cohen and christine roth for pulling this show together and thank you to you our listeners for sticking with us we're um, having a great time exploring all of the cool ways that people interact with plants across medicine food and the diet um, thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and i'll see you next time